This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. Jill Bennett with you until 2 p.m. today. Lots happening. The modeling has been released. If you were listening in, we brought you part of that news conference with Dr. Bonnie Henry and Health Minister Adrian Dix offering some cautious optimism. Don't usually use that phrase, but in this particular scenario, it is what we're talking about. The numbers are appearing to show a bend in the curve, but in saying that the health officer, again, Dr. Bonnie Henry saying we must continue with the measures in place, the physical distancing of two meters, the shutdown of businesses that make it impossible to do that. And if if we continue to take on those measures, we will likely see continued good news. So that uh, was the main part of the news conference. We'll have much more on that coming up on the program. Uh, one of the findings, too, was that BC is more in a scenario such as South Korea as opposed to what we're seeing in Italy, the increased numbers of deaths in the hundreds every day in Italy. That's also offering a little bit of good news. So what lessons can Canada learn from other countries? Well, Claire Allen, CKNW contributor, spoke with J. Michael Cole, a senior fellow of the Macdonald-Laurier Institute, about this and what Canada can learn from Taiwan when it comes to dealing with the pandemic. Taiwan and Canada had their first cases of coronavirus at around the same time, but the experiences have been very different. To date, with Canada having more than 4,000 cases of COVID-19 and 39 recorded deaths, Taiwan has had 256 cases of COVID-19 and two deaths. Schools in Taiwan are still open. The economy is still functioning. Citizens are living what are largely normal lives. So the question is, how did Taiwan succeed where other countries have failed, even though it's so close to China and linked by tourism, travel and trade? Well, here is part of that conversation with J. Michael Cole. Again, he is a senior fellow of the McDonnell-Laurier Institute, talking about what has contributed to Taiwan's success in the battle against this virus. It's a constellation of, of variables. I maintain again that you know Taiwan was among the handful of countries that were severely affected by the SARS outbreak in 2003. They learned a lot of lessons from that particular experience, one of which was a lack of centralized authority to deal with the outbreak back then. So immediately following the SARS outbreak, the Taiwanese government established a command center that can be activated uh, whenever they're facing crises such as uh, as this one. A number of individuals, including Taiwan's current vice president, who were involved in the response in 2003, are currently in positions of authority uh, in Taiwanese government. So again, they bring their experiences to bear on, 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 on their response. Another area that certainly plays in Taiwan's favor, it's, it's an island nation. It's certainly uh, easier to control your borders. Uh, basically, all you have to do is to impose restrictions on, on flight arrivals. Uh, then they implemented very quick screening and containment and quarantine initially with flights from Wuhan. Then that was extended to other cities in China. And eventually, as the outbreak spread to other parts of the world, uh, Taiwan also implemented uh, these measures. Another area where Taiwan is quite strong is that they have a government that is very open to using new technology, social media, artificial intelligence and whatnot. And there's a good number of people in government or in NGOs collaborating with Taiwanese government 
who also very early on were called upon uh, to assist uh, developing platforms and, and different ads and, and whatnot to uh, quickly educate the population, tell necessary information to the public uh, so that everybody, it became a whole of government response, if you will, and the public was quite responsive. So all these factors certainly helped with Taiwan's response. Now, Taiwan's success in the fight against COVID-19 also has a lot to do with how that country uses big data. And as Michael discusses, Taiwan's government has a lot of experience utilizing data to stop the spread of viruses. Taiwan has a minister, Audrey Tang, who is herself a former hacker and became a minister in the current government. So she and others were called upon to uh, basically use big data by consolidating uh, databases from different government agencies, including immigration, national health system, and other agencies to basically very quickly draw a full picture of people's movements, people who had traveled abroad, and if so, where they had gone and when, and to use that the moment they came back to Taiwan to determine who needed to be quarantined, who needed to be, their health needed to be followed by the authorities and, and all that. And Taiwan is a really high-tech, modern, developed society, so everybody has one or two or three cell phones, and everybody uses these platforms to obtain information. So that made communication between the government and the public very efficient as well. And that's that's normal. That's that's par for the course in, in a society like um, like Taiwan. And what they're doing now as well is that they're using, uh, for anyone who comes back from overseas to Taiwan and is imposed a 14-day quarantine, upon landing in Taiwan, uh, Taiwanese authorities will gather information about their cell phone. And they're now using that as well. Uh, to track people's movements, to make sure that people indeed respect quarantine measures. This may come across as drastic, but we are facing a non-precedented uh, situation. And again, the Taiwanese uh, public is, has shown quite, quite a lot of understanding about these measures taken by the government. Now, the use of data by the Taiwanese government is a technique that would very likely raise some eyebrows here in North America for Canadians. Allowing the government to monitor citizens through the collection of data can seem a bit Orwellian. However, Michael says that for the Taiwanese, it all comes down to a level of trust. Taiwan certainly itself dealt with decades of authoritarian rule during the Cold War from the end of World War II until 1987, basically. So you have a whole generation of people that remembers government intrusions, remembers surveillance and, and gathering data and arrests and whatnot against a citizen. The difference now, obviously, is that Taiwan is a vibrant democracy. There are checks and balances on, on the government. In this particular instance, my sense is that the Taiwanese public trusts the government with these powers, again, understanding that this is a crisis situation, it's an emergency, uh, and they trust government authorities not to abuse these powers uh, once the emergency has passed. Now, yesterday, the B.C. government announced it was establishing a provincial supply chain. We are already a few weeks into the crisis, though, brought on by the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, Michael also told Claire Taiwan was quick to secure their supply lines before the declaration of the pandemic. So what they did, basically, particularly with facial masks, is government called upon uh, industry leaders and the Ministry of Economic Affairs, and they created in the central city of Taichung, a, uh, basically a manufacturer, that brought together dozens and dozens of, of different companies and decentralized production of masks. So within a matter of weeks, they turned from a country that had insufficient number of facial masks 
into one that can produce uh, currently 10 million masks every single day. Uh, and by April, we'll have the ability to produce 15 million masks every single day. Uh, they also, again, using uh, big data and, and uh, information technology, they quickly established a system whereby people could acquire facial masks at local pharmacies and, and stores uh, and to make sure to prevent hoarding and make sure that people were not gathering too many masks either for themselves or to send to China or to sell overseas. So there was, again, that intelligent control of, of supply and, and acquisition. So one final note, what can Canada learn from Taiwan when it comes to dealing with the pandem pandemic? I think if there's areas where other countries could learn from Taiwan, again, uses of big data, but not only uses of big data itself, but also the ability to to partner that with respect for personal freedoms and, and democratic ideals is an area where I think Taiwan has done quite well. Uh, I mean, China uses big data as well, but as we know, it's an authoritarian regime. It does not have a free press and it has disappeared and arrested a number of individuals and whistleblowers early on uh, who were trying to alert uh, the Chinese public and the international community. So you have two examples of countries that are quite good with big data, but on one side, a country that abuses those powers and another uh, country that respects democratic ideals and principles in using those those systems. So going back to your earlier question, the skepticism among people in the West about allowing the government to uh, have such intrusive powers, well, if they learn more from how Taiwan has been able to sell that to uh, its own citizens, uh, and then perhaps convincing people in the West that temporarily they might want to give those powers to their government, uh, I think that would go a long way into helping these countries deal with the uh, situation as well. Let's bring in Jock Finlayson now, Executive Vice President and Chief Policy Officer at the Business Council of BC. Jock, thank you so much for being with us today. Yeah, glad to be here. Thanks. The Business Council has put out a couple of models as well as to what we might see uh, in uh, fallout from COVID-19. Maybe you could run through them for us. Yeah, well, we decided to... Uh uh, try and update our understanding of how this is playing out in the BC economy. And obviously we're dealing with something that's still unfolding. So there's, you know, huge amounts of uncertainty around any uh, forecast. But we do two different scenarios. Uh, one where the worst of it is sort of over in the second quarter, uh, the worst of the crisis and the shutdown of business that's uh, been implemented to try and contain the spread essentially runs its course by the second quarter. In the second scenario, it runs a little bit further than that and has more lasting consequences. We also did this uh, uh, using a bottom-up analysis. So we basically looked at what's happening uh, on the ground in the different industries that we're in touch with rather than a sort of model uh, modeled approach where you're looking at kind of expenditure uh, in the economy and aggregate. Based on that work, uh, we came up with two different scenarios. The best case scenario is the provincial economy shrinks or contracts by about 7% in 2020 on an average annual basis compared to 2019. And the, and the, uh, the more pessimistic scenario, the economy shrinks by over 10% in 2020. Uh, compared to 2019, both of those numbers, even the lower number, would be, uh, you know, a record, a record deep uh, economic decline or a record large economic decline for the province, concentrated all within a relatively short period. So it's it's really uh, an extraordinary situation and uh, unlike anything we have experienced before. 
Uh, there's no doubt about that. Right, because even though the number, people might think, look at those numbers and think, well, the single-digit number doesn't sound so bad. When you look at it uh, in cost, and even compared to where we were in 2009, it's huge. It is, and it, you know, we, we, we're economists, so we're working with what we call real gross domestic product, which doesn't mean anything to, to most people. Uh, but it basically means the value of what we produce in the economy or the cost uh, of, of, of what we kind of consume. And um, the thing about this downturn that is going to be very, very unique is it's, it's caused by an external shock, which is what this pandemic is. So it's it's very unlike uh, most uh, economic cycles that uh, that we've gone through in the past. Um, and it's happening with lightning speed. I mean, I have never seen anything like this in 35 years. As you know, working as a as, as an economist in the business community, we're seeing mass shutdowns, uh, tremendous numbers of layoffs, with many, many more to come. All have all sort of telescoped into a period of just uh, just a couple of months. So it's it, it it truly is a big shock. The biggest difference between this slump. And, and previous cycles, I think, is the impact on employment. We're going to have millions of people across the country, maybe four or five million or more, that are going to be uh, out of work, at least for some period of time, as a result of the shutting down of large parts of the economy. And here in B.C., I would expect we'll be looking at five or 600,000 job losses just just in the next uh, six to eight weeks as as, as large parts of the service economy shut down. So again, we have no sort of precedent for that historically, and it it makes it very, very tricky to try and do any kind of analysis, but we, we took a stab at it. Absolutely. And when you talk about the job losses, though, is there some hope that uh, that the bulk of those will be temporary? Yeah, I, I, well, I, I certainly uh, would, would, would hope that's the case. I think uh, uh, Mr. Trudeau announced uh, uh, a much stronger federal response to try and prevent companies from going insolvent during this period. In other words, companies laying off their people because they have no revenues coming in or virtually no revenues. In many cases, businesses could very, very quickly go under. The enhanced wage subsidies that are uh, announced today, and I haven't dug into all the details yet. Apparently, we're going to have to wait till Monday to see, to see more of the detail out of Ottawa. That should help to sort of cushion the blow, but it's not going to completely eliminate it. We're, we're still sadly going to see a lot of I think businesses close, and and that means that when we're through the crisis, some companies won't be around to bring their people back. Uh, hopefully, most will, but some will not, and that's one of the reasons why our forecast shows a bigger decline in economic activity than we're seeing from most of the other Canadian forecasters, who who are using kind of a different methodology. In other words, I see I see thousands of businesses tragically not being able to reopen their doors and in June or July, or whenever this whenever this crisis is behind us, uh, we only have about uh, forty seconds left. Do are you able to to look at this and think what businesses will weather it the best? Companies with that aren't heavily indebted, companies that have cash reserves, strong balance sheets, companies that can deal with their banks and get their lines of credit increased or extended. Uh, companies that are still in business. Uh, most of the businesses that are, are being shut are in what I call consumer-facing industries, retail, hospitality, leisure, entertainment, restaurants, food services, industries, resource industries, manufacturing, rail, trucking, oil and gas, utilities, these upstream industries, hopefully most of them are going to keep operating. And so it really depends what sector you're in and how strong your balance sheet is. 
All right. We will leave it there, but uh, talk to you again soon, I'm sure. Jock, thank you so much for your time. Keep safe. All right, you too. That is Jock Finlayson, Executive Vice President and Chief Policy Officer at the Business Council of BC. All right, thanks for being with us on this Friday. A group of advocates is calling on the B.C. government to make some changes that would allow people that are already on disability benefits or on welfare to have access to the Canadian Emergency Response Benefit and to be able to keep that benefit. Joining me to explain this a little bit more is Douglas King. He is the Executive Director with the Together Against Poverty Society. Douglas, thanks so much for being with us. Absolutely, thank you. Uh, so walk us through, because uh, we've talked about this before. If you are getting the disability benefit or you're getting some other types of social assistance, you're allowed to work a certain amount, uh, but there's a, a, an equation that works there. So what is the issue that you see with people in that scenario that might also be applying for this benefit? Right, we call this the earnings exemption for anyone who's on a provincial disability or income assistance benefits. And basically what it means is that uh, an individual, if they're on disability, for example, they can make up to $12,000 in a calendar year uh, and not have that money deducted from their monthly check from the ministry. Uh, The federal benefit that's been introduced now, of course, is meant to make up any lost income. And what we're seeing is is people who were on disability that were employed and have now lost that employment, uh, even if they are able to receive that federal uh, benefit, as it currently stands, the provincial ministry would just take that money back from them. So what would have to happen to change that? What we need is a a legislative change here. Uh, It can be done through the regulations as well, but basically we just need the focus uh, from the ministry to be on this this sometimes forgotten group. Um, You know, as a society, we tend to, unfortunately, put people into one or two categories, either you're on disability or you're a worker. Um, The reality is there's there's quite a lot of overlap. There are are a number of people who are on disability that are employed and and are going to be um, hurting because they've lost that employment because of the COVID crisis. Uh, If the ministry is able to extend that earnings exemption to the federal benefits, uh, then that would give them the ability to enjoy that benefit the way that everyone else can. Uh, And given that we're dealing with this unprecedented situation right now, uh, the legislature even uh, calling it back, even calling back the federal government to get things done is is a a very strange scenario. Uh, Do do you think it's even possible that uh, we would be able to make that legislative change in in time to, to stop that from being clawed back? Well, I think thankfully it, it doesn't require an, uh, an actual amendment to the act itself. It can be done through what's called a, a regulation change. and um, That doesn't necessarily need to have uh, parliament itself or legislature itself sitting to make that change. Uh, the bigger issue right now is, is just there's so much to do right now. Um, government is, is, you know, focusing on as much as they possibly can. But I think the reality is, is that not everything is, is going to be addressed. Not everyone's situation is going to be addressed. And, and what we're trying to do here is just kind of raise the alarm because we have a group of people, some of the most vulnerable workers that we have in our province. Uh, and if we don't get this changed, then they could have some very hard times ahead. And just to clarify, so would it be somebody, so if we took somebody that was on the provincial disability benefit and somebody who's who can earn up to the $12,000 a year and not have the deductions from, from what they receive in benefits, if that person, say, was in a scenario where he or she lost the job, would they then, I mean, it's not a great scenario because it means you've lost your mm-hmm. income, but in that scenario, would they still then be able to keep whatever they got through the new Canada Emergency Response Benefit? Well, that's that's ultimately the issue here. Um, a lot of people who are on disability and are working, um, they don't necessarily have full-time employment. Um, and actually, the system is kind of designed to, to maximize your benefits if you're on part-time employment. So what we're seeing is a lot of people who are on disability that are working don't qualify for EI in the typical sense. Uh, 
this this new federal benefit, the CERB, was created to cover, you know, in part those people, part-time workers, the self-employed, um, recognizing that everyone who's been impacted by this is not going to qualify for EI. Uh, the issue is not necessarily whether or not these workers could qualify for the CERB. If, if they have been employed and they've lost that employment for 14 days, uh, they would be able to qualify for it. The problem is that is under the legislation, uh, under the legislature, the benefits once they're received essentially have to be passed back on to the provincial government. So, um, what we ultimately would have is a situation where the federal government is, is paying the provincial government, and, and none of it is going to the worker. And you mentioned this: and there is so much changing and so much happening every single day. Is it possible that this could be done after the fact? In that, or does that money just automatically go to the provincial government? Uh, we do have a little bit of time to work with here, um, and we know that these federal benefits probably won't be arriving for at least a couple weeks now. So um, it is an urgent matter for sure, but uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be addressed right away. Uh, and we also you know, could see kind of an amnesty put on all exemptions for, for anyone who's on income assistance and disability. If there's a recognition from the provincial government that everybody should just be trying to get as much income as possible right now, um, then, then people could kind of put that out of their minds. I think one of the most difficult things about this is, is how complicated it is, and we now have multiple layers of benefits on top of each other. Um, certainly in our office, we're seeing a lot of confusion and a lot of kind of desperation just for, for how to navigate these new systems. Um, you know, at the end of the day, we're creating them on the fly, and, and no one's experienced the situation before. So um, there's no blame to be laid there, but um, I think part of what we're trying to do here is just uh, to get people to remember we have a very, very vulnerable group of people that's going to need some help navigating this crisis. Absolutely. How many people do you think would be in this scenario? Well, the vast majority of people who are on ministry benefits um, don't maximize the earnings exemption, even if they use a little bit. But we do know there's about 5% of workers who, who take the maximum of that earnings exemption. So those are the ones who really stand to, to suffer the most if this change is not made. Um, for some of them, it would basically cut their income significantly and put them in a very precarious position. Do you know how many British Columbians, though, we would be talking about there, though? Uh, I don't actually have an exact number on that. I think the ministry would probably know, um, as, as they have the ability to, to check that, and I think they are alive to their, their situation. Um, we do hope to communicate with the ministry as we go, uh, not only this, but a couple more policy changes that we think need to be made to protect people who are on welfare in this crisis. Uh, and our hope is that ultimately they will be able to, to extend that protection. Uh, and you mentioned this or touched on this, and we've also been getting email and seeing uh, people as well uh, frustrated and I think a bit uh, having difficulty, like you said, navigating how to access these benefits, how to apply for them. Uh, is enough being done, do you think, to make to kind of streamline that? And I get, like you said, this is all being done on the fly. It's all brand new. Uh, mm-hmm. But is there enough support out there to help people know where they can access and what they can access? Um, absolutely not. And, and you know, this is a consequence of, of decades of the government downloading this responsibility to the charitable sector. Uh, we constantly rely on nonprofits like our organization and the other ones that we partnered with on this letter um, to be kind of the, the voice for these people and, and to translate that information for them. But our offices are struggling to, to function in this crisis just as much as anybody else is. Uh, our government offices have not been well designed, you know, to take on this this increase in caseload and also to to disseminate the information to people, and that's a real problem that we have, uh, and it's going to be a problem going forward, not just in this crisis. And, and our hope is that there's some lessons to be learned here. Uh, there's a greater responsibility in, that the government really has downloaded over the last two decades, and and our hope is that they might be willing to take it back after this. All right, we will leave it there, Douglas King. Thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it. 
Thank you. Doug King is the executive director of the Together Against Poverty Society. Well, one of the things that has been really pleasant to talk about during this pandemic, and it's the number of stories that we've had coming forward about companies adapting to help out during the pandemic. Sure, there has been a ton of bad news, negative news, scary news, and that is going to continue. But we're also really trying to highlight some of the brighter points and people that are really coming through, whether it is changing what your company is doing or trying to find solutions, say, if there is a shortage of medical equipment. Well, a BC company is now using 3D printer technology to create masks that can be used by healthcare workers. Uh, Leon Eng is the CEO and founder of Eng Studios or LNG Studios in BC, and he joins us on the line now to talk a little bit more about this. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Uh, so, uh, I, I'm saying that right. Am I, it's LNG Studios, correct? It's LNG Studios. Okay. <laughs> All right. So, yeah. what have you done then as far as retooling the 3D printers and printing face shields? Yeah. So, we're 3D printing face shields for frontline workers right now. Um, we are using approximately five printers, uh, printing around one every 45 minutes. We found an open source file from Europe that's very widely used right now. And we're working with local hospitals to deliver these products directly to frontline frontline workers. So we're not talking about the, the masks, the medical masks we, we've seen healthcare's healthcare workers wearing, or even people on the street wearing. What what exactly does this look like? So this is like a face shield. So it covers from the top of your head all the way to the bottom of your neck. So it's to complement the face mask that you're wearing. Hmm. And uh, what response have you had from healthcare workers as far as the de- the demand for these? It's the demand is is all t- it's, it's super high. Uh, we're working with six different local hospitals right now. Um, we we're actually calling out for the three D printing community to rally behind us to help with the production capacity because we can't meet it right now. Wow. So we heard earlier in the week, too, that Bauer was doing this. Uh, I'm guessing that company is a little bit bigger than yours, but is it something along the same line as far as retooling and making this product? Um, Yes, that's correct. Um, So the model that we're using is actually um, approved by the Ministry of Health from from Czech Republic and is widely used throughout Europe. So the the thing that some of the feedback we've gotten from um, some of the hospitals is that they don't want to use foam. Um, so foam is actually, it would actually potentially collect bacteria. So we're trying to work closely with the hospitals and we've been um, getting individual hospitals to approve our design um, before we send, to send it out to them. Interesting. So when you, when you first started doing this then, and you, so you repurposed the printers, what, what goes into that for somebody when you call on the 3D printing world to, to, to do this? How big of a task is it to retool these printers? So the beauty about this technology is we can send them the 3D model and they should be able to print it themselves with a, with a little bit of guidance. But this is, um, it is very possible that if you do have a 3D printer, um, we, you can do these at home. Hmm. And you said it was about 40 minutes for each shield to print? Uh, that's correct. Uh, right now, um, it's at 40 minutes, although we're trying to increase our capacity right now. We have five printers that are running simultaneously. Hmm. And um, when, when you get them done, or the materials that you're using, so where do you get the materials that, that, that become these shields? Yeah, so there, we're working with local suppliers. Um, we're using this material called PETG. It's kind of like this uh, clear sheet that goes um, in front of the shield, and that's replaceable. 
Um, so we're working with local suppliers um, to get these sheets, and um, we, we need to use laser cutters to cut them. Um, so we're really calling for um, any material suppliers to assist us as well, and also from the business community to to really um, see if they can give back and help support um, of uh, paying for the next batch of our materials. Right. So how much does it cost to manufacture these? Right now, uh, because we're not as full efficiency, it'll cost around, um, for, for 60 face shields, it'll cost around 2000 if you if you factor in labor. Um, but, uh, but these are definitely uh, making a big difference. Um, and these, the visor portion is actually reusable. Um, so it, it, it is potentially... Um, very scalable if we, if we do this correctly. And are you selling them to the hospitals or donating them at this point? We are donating um, all the face shields to a hospital. Wow, so that's gonna, that cost is going to ramp up for you guys. That's correct. That's why we have a GoFundMe page. Um, if you go to lngstudios.com, uh, there's instructions there where you can, um, anyone can support. All right, and you might have mentioned this. What would, if we weren't in the middle of a, pandem- a pandemic right now, what would you guys normally be printing? Um, so we are a architectural visualization studio. So we will be printing architectural models for architects and real estate developers. All right. So, the, so how difficult was it, or how challenging was it to go from that to printing these face shields? You know, we, we've been doing this for um, close to five, six years now. So once you have that three D model, it's not very diff- difficult for us to pivot. That's why I think we're in a very unique position to give back. And, uh, you know, traditional supply chains are strained. It takes weeks for these um, face shields to get to the hospital. And But with 3D printing, you can basically print one every 45 minutes. Hmm. And you, you mentioned that the file, the, the file was an open source file from Europe. Have you noticed, have people been stepping up with sharing these files and making sure that companies like yours can access them and that it leads to the production of these materials? Yes, um, so we've seen a lot of different versions of uh, face shields out there, and a lot of these are open source, so anyone could download these. Um, but we've, we've decided to use this one because it's most widely used. And any plans to expand? I know you said that you have uh, the, retooled the number of printers. So any plans to uh, expand how much you guys are producing? Yeah, so um, we are getting a lot of support from the community where people are um, lending their 3D printers to us. Um, But in the last day or so, we've had over 100 inquiries saying from the community saying, hey, I got these three printers. I want to do something with this. Can you please teach us how to how to print these models? So we've been getting really good feedback. Hmm. Uh, But we need we need more help. (laughs) Absolutely. And and have you been able you, you mentioned this, you've been able to teach other people or walk other people with the printers through how they can do this as well? Yes, that's correct. All right. So give us the GoFundMe page or where people can go and learn more about this if they want to get involved and, and perhaps help uh, the company out. Yes. Yeah, so um, go to lngstudios.com. All the information's on there. The, there's a link to the GoFundMe page there as well. Um, so, yeah, I, 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 we would really appreciate all the support we can get. All right. Uh, that is uh, the website where people can check that out. Uh, best of luck to you. It sounds like you're doing amazing work and that things uh, will keep ramping up. Thanks so much for taking some time uh, to talk to us today. Thank you very much for having me. All right. That is Leon Eng, CEO and founder of LNG Studios, using their 3D printers to create face shields for healthcare workers and working with a number of hospitals on that. 
Just a reminder, it is Friday, and that means later on this hour, we will have the news quiz. We're going to make it a little bit lighter this week, again, just to end the show on a bit of a lighter note. Right now, though, recapping the big story of the day, BC's top doctor says she is cautiously optimistic that the measures in place in BC are helping to bend that curve and to stop the spread of COVID-19. However, that comes with a warning that hospitals could still be overwhelmed if we see a rapid increase in cases. And that's why it is so important, Dr. Bonnie Henry says, to make sure people continue with those measures, staying home if possible when going out, maintaining at least two metres between you and other people, washing your hands and staying as healthy as possible. So the models released today were pretty impressive. When you take a look at the graphs and looking at what is happening in different countries and how BC was able to crunch those numbers and come up with predictions for this province, how do they do it? Well, Daniel Coombs is a UBC professor with expertise in mathematical models of pandemic growth and control, also part of a group of professors from UBC and SFU that is advising the BC Centre for Disease Control on their pandemic modelling. Let's bring Daniel Coombs in now on the line. Thank you so much for taking some time with us. Hi, yeah, glad to be here. Uh, so the models released today, it was a lot of information, uh, also looked at what's happening in other countries around the world, those that are a bit of a he- a bit of a, ahead of Canada when it comes to the pandemic. How do you take all that information and come up with these models? <laughs> well, it's, it's not easy every time. And I have to admit, I'm still digesting Dr. Henry and Dr. Uh, Adrian Dix's presentation from this morning. Um, but what I see uh, from the data is is a clear deviation from the exponential growth trajectory that the uh, province was experiencing um, maybe two weeks to one week ago. Um, the graph is definitely uh, bending away from that exponential growth. And so I think Dr. Henry has every uh, good reason to be cautiously optimistic uh, in her predictions uh, going forward. Uh, she mentioned that there will be people who were exposed to COVID-19 before the restrictions came into place, be it physical distancing or the travel restrictions, and that the numbers will keep going up, uh, but that that's to be expected. Uh, so, I mean, how, how important is that, that we know the exact time of these measures that are making the difference and know that there will still be cases from before then? Yeah, I think that's a, a very important point. The, the um, pe- people who were exposed to COVID, um, you know, um, up to two weeks ago may, may, or, uh, may still be unaware that they're infected or may be experiencing a very mild infection. Um, and so it's, it's sort of predicted that the uh, total number of cases uh, that are being detected will continue to increase probably. Uh, my, my previous prediction would have been out to maybe the end of next week, um, but we'll have to see how that plays out, of course. Right, because that's when we look at the numbers, I guess what's important, too, is to remember that we're not looking at numbers in real time, really. We're looking at numbers that are because of what happened a week ago or two weeks ago. Yeah, exactly. It's um, Yes, people who were infected maybe two weeks ago are just getting the results of tests that they took a few days ago now um, because there are delays from exposure to maybe feeling some symptoms to maybe feeling sick enough to get yourself to... Um, the doctor or the hospital even, uh, and get a test at that point. Uh, 
BC changed the way it was doing the testing as well as far as the number of tests and who exactly was being tested in that if somebody is a family member of somebody who was a positive test, if that person developed symptoms, they were assumed to be a case, they wouldn't actually be tested. Uh, So if the actual numbers are actually much higher than the test numbers, does that come into play when modeling? Absolutely. This this has been an issue around the world that um, different countries, the first country was China. Um, at some point in January, they changed the way that they were um, uh, choosing who to test um, and, uh, and report the numbers. And these changes have, have happened in different jurisdictions at different times um, as the testing infrastructure has um, you know, gotten busy and, and even in a few cases become overwhelmed. Um, that was not the case here. Um, but what what's important is that uh, I believe that the testing changes uh, happened around two weeks ago. I forget the exact date. But as long as that has been implemented consistently since um, it was implemented, then we can compare numbers today to numbers yesterday to numbers the day before. And so we can definitely see that we're starting to move away from that exponential growth. Uh, BC also looked at other, uh, to prepare for what could possibly happen here for possible scenarios. Uh, they looked at the spread in Hubei province uh, in northern Italy and South Korea and, and said we were closer to what's happening in South Korea than, say, northern Italy. Uh, how do you take the information from these other places around the world that are on a different timeline as far as the pandemic and use that to make our predictions? Yeah, so, um, well, there's, there's two factors. I mean, some countries were just ahead of other countries uh, in, in terms of the, of the epidemic. So, uh, obviously, China was, was the first country to really feel the effects of this. Um, and then um, South Korea and Italy are somewhat ahead of, uh, of where we are. Um, um, so, 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 yeah, so, so that's, um, that's, uh, uh, that, that, that's one thing to consider. The other thing is the date on which the... Um, on which uh, you know social distancing provisions were implemented, um, and it is it is beginning. Uh, I think Dr. Henry said is we can co- begin to be cautiously optimistic that the restrictions were implemented early enough here that um, the hospitals are uh, well. Our trajectory is going to be closer to a South Korean trajectory than a Northern Italy trajectory, and this means hopefully that the um, hospitals will not be overwhelmed with cases as we've uh, tragically seen in Italy over the past couple of weeks. Right, and, and she talked about that as well, in that if that is the trajectory, then BC now has uh, knows that it has more than 1,200 ventilators and, and would have the bed space or would at least be able to prepare for that. Yeah, this, this is an important thing. When people talk about flattening the curve, but also delaying the curve a little bit, which allowed our, um, allows different um, health agencies time to prepare for the for the you know uh, coming growth in cases. Right, because is the the goal then, or the modeling then, is to look at that is is to flatten the curve, like you said, delaying things. In that, if there's say a second wave, or if this comes back next year, uh, whether we have a vaccine or not, it's knowing what to deal with it, or how many people, and what's the, what level of severity. I would imagine. Yeah, of course, um, and. You know, when we're rushing to prepare models, um, you know, uh, as we have been over the last few weeks, sometimes we have to leave out some details, such as the um, uh, effects of the age distribution of the infected population on the severity of the disease. So if a lot of elderly people get the disease, we'll see, um, you know, much more severe effects on them. Um, We're starting to build that into some of our uh, models now with the hope of getting better and more accurate predictions uh, going forward. Now that, and this is possible now that we have a better sense of maybe what's going on 
in the province and internationally. And when we look at what's happening in China and seeing things, we're getting reports in the last couple of days that that things are getting much better. They're saying there are no new cases. I mean, I guess you have to take a bit of a leap of faith that what's being told is the absolute truth. But can you use that then and, and work that into the model of timing here as far as BC's response? Yeah, so China is in a completely different place than us because they, they saw the big wave crest um, and come back down, and now that they're now reporting that there are no new cases. And I think we have to treat um, some of these statements with a little bit of caution, um, but taking it at, at face value, we, we will hopefully in, in um, you know, a few weeks or uh, more like months, we're going to find ourselves in that position where we're going to be looking at how do we move um, – how do we move back to normal life in a way that we don't end up with a large second wave of infections? And I think those are some questions where the, the models are going to be uh, uh, informative uh, going forward. Right, because I think one of the concerns is by even by putting the information out there today that we're cautiously optimistic, people might take that as a, a chance to take a breath and let our guard down, which I would imagine it's more important than ever to continue doing these measures if the models show that they're working. Yeah, and, and I, I can't stress that enough. In, in, in my opinion, you know, a little bit of optimistic data for just a few days is absolutely not a reason to change the, to change the social distancing that we're doing. Um, you know, the, the trajectory could, could easily move again. Um, you know, it, it wouldn't take um, a whole lot. I, I could certainly imagine uh, the numbers uh, <laughs> changing based on uh, changes in people's behavior now. Uh, going forward. Uh, there was just a, a news flash that came across saying more Canadians have now died of this coronavirus compared to how many died from SARS. Did we learn modeling from SARS or, or is this based on lessons learned from SARS? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I think part, of, part of the reason that, that Canada's response, I think, has been robust but measured has come from the experience of public health officials like Dr. Henry, uh, who had experience with SARS earlier on. Uh, so even in the mathematical modeling community, um, SARS, I think, was a big wake-up call for many people in Canada. Many of my colleagues uh, worked on models of SARS, uh, following, mostly following the epidemic. And then those, uh, that experience um, came to bear again during pandemic flu in 2009. Um, and then people have applied models that were developed in Canada um, to uh, the Ebola epidemic in West Africa a few years ago. All right, we'll leave it there. Uh, Daniel Coombs, thank you so much. Uh, it's uh, fascinating looking at how the models are put together and that information, how it gets put out there. Thank you so much for taking some time with us. Great, thanks for having me. All right, Daniel Coombs is a UBC professor, expertise in the mathematical models of pandemic growth and control, also part of a group of professors uh, from both UBC and SFU.